This episode is brought to you by Dropbox. Start your free trial with this amazing service by following the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Rachel Maddow Show, Counterspin, On the Media, This American Life, The Daily Show, and Countdown. is your first quote. If we are able to stop Obama on this, it'll be his Waterloo. It will break him. That was your own senator, Senator Jim DeMann of South Carolina. He was setting a high-minded and collegial tone <laughs> for the increasingly angry debate about what? Well, I'm going to take a stab in the dark, Peter, and say that it may have something to do with health care. Yes, indeed. It was the health reform proposals. Now, for those who do not follow history, Waterloo is a catchy dance number by ABBA. <laughs> Perhaps, and we're not sure, in his metaphor, DeMint was contrasting the health reform proposal with the more successful stimulus bill, which was Obama's dancing queen. Right. <laughs> this week, uh, as the health care debate went forward, things got personal. For instance, Republican Representative Paul Brown of Georgia said the president's plan is, quote, going to kill people, unquote. <laughs> Obama responded by showed up everywhere this week from the Today Show to airline safety videos. He was the guy pointing at the exits. <laughs> In a primetime press conference on Wednesday, he assured us all that the plan won't increase the deficit and that the government will not, in fact, deny you care and leave you to die unless, of course, a bipartisan health care management committee decides we need your organs. If, if my head explodes trying to understand the health care debate, will my current plan cover the cost of reconstructive yeah. surgery? No, no you... Well, I got so confused, Mo, I thought I, I had ADD, seriously, and I went to my doctor and he gave me medication and my insurance covered it and I've forgotten what the problem was. <laughs> it worked out. So that's pretty much the way it's supposed to go. Good. Now this is interesting, um, as you know, one of the big problems is there's costs incurred if you expand coverage to include everybody else, somebody has to pay for it. It's been a problem, Obama came up with a way to pay for it. They are going to release a uh, special edition Obama brand mom jeans. Mm. Ah. Loose fitting, very comfortable, <laughs> and uh, very unflattering and uh, sexless as befitting our new socialist paradise. So that will be <laughs> good for everybody. conspiracy theories in U.S. politics and wacky old special interest driven D.C. tactics. 
1993, the last time a newly elected Democratic president was pursuing health care reform, two of his most formidable foes were Harry and Louise, a fictional middle-aged couple sitting at a kitchen table talking smack about how dangerous it would be to reform the American health care system. Harry and Louise, of course, weren't just a freelance, actual middle-class couple concerned about cutting into the insurance industry's profit margins. They were actors. They were hired by the insurance industry to try to sink the reform plan. Well, incidentally, the same actors who portrayed Harry and Louise back in 1993 this year have been hired by pro-healthcare reform forces to try to sell the idea of reform. So the corporate interests opposed to changing the system they profit from so handsomely and their allies in the conservative movement have found new actors to sit at a fictional kitchen table and talk smack about how dangerous it would be to reform health care this time. Here they are. They're the new Harry and Louise. And this time, the reason they say changing the health care system is so scary is because, you guessed it, health care reform is really a secret plot to kill old people and to try to make people have more abortions. They won't pay for my surgery. What are we going to do? But honey, you can't live this way. And to think that Planned Parenthood is included in the government-run health care plan and spending tax dollars on abortions. They won't pay for my surgery, but we're forced to pay for abortions. Our greatest generation denied care. Our future generation denied life. Call your senator. Stop the government takeover of health care. Family Research Council Action is responsible for the content of this advertisement. You got that? The real agenda lurking behind health care reform is a secret plot to kill old people and to promote abortion. That ad was just released by the conservative group, the Family Research Council. Now, you know about the conspiracy theory that the president secretly isn't really the president because he's secretly foreign. Those conspiracists are called birthers, right? Well, Christopher Beam at Slate.com has christened the healthcare reform as a secret plot to kill old people conspiracists as the deathers which is sort of brilliant. The deathers theory is being advanced not only by far-right advocacy groups like the Family Research Council, it's also being advanced in Congress by Republicans like Virginia Fox of North Carolina. It will not put seniors in a position of being put to death by their government. The deathers theory is also being advanced by Republicans like Congressman Louie Gohmert on talk radio. We've been battling this socialist health care, the nationalization of health care that is going to absolutely kill uh, senior citizens. They'll put them on a list and, and force them to die early. The deathers theory is also being advanced as of today on the editorial page of the conservative newspaper, The Washington Times. It should probably be noted that the editorial cites as its sources right-wing talk show host Mark Levin, the Red State blog, and foxnews.com. But as the deathers theory leeches from the wingnut fringe into the mainstream of efforts to stop health care reform, consider where it started. Consider its source. When you start digging, it turns out that this theory all traces back to a single person, a person named Betsy McCoy. She's a director of a medical device company called Cantel Medical Corporation. She's also a former director of a biotech company called Genta. She's also a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, a conservative think tank funded by some of the biggest pharmaceutical giants in the country. Betsy McCoy is the person who started the whole conspiracy theory that the government promoting people getting living wills, which the government has done for 20 years, is somehow now a secret plot to kill old people. 
Congress would make it mandatory, absolutely required that every five years, people in Medicare have a required counseling session that will tell them how to end their life sooner. Eh, wrong. Not true. Not in the bill. Not there. Totally false. But nevertheless, Ms. McCoy has seeded that idea on the editorial page of the New York Post and in talk radio interviews with hosts like Fred Thompson. And that's been enough for it to take root on the right. Now, Betsy McCoy has also done this before. In 1994, she wrote an attack on the Bill Clinton health care reform proposal in a magazine called The New Republic. That article was so riddled with errors that the magazine ultimately distanced themselves from it, even though they published it in the first place. But that didn't stop the opponents of health care reform back then from citing her disproven attacks over and over and over again. And so far, nothing is stopping the opponents of health care reform now from doing the same thing. The Duthers theory is everywhere on the right. It's on the House floor, it's on talk radio, it's in TV ads, and it is a script, a nonsense, totally made up, totally disprovable script written by the corporate interests who have wanted to block health care reform forever because they're making a mint off of the way it is now. Welcome back to 1993. This podcast is supported by Dropbox. Dropbox is amazingly powerful and incredibly simple. It runs on your computer as an almost ordinary folder, but anything you put in that folder is synced automatically with the Dropbox servers. From there, you can easily share the files with anyone or keep multiple computers like work and home in sync all the time, all while enjoying a secure online backup of those files. I personally use Dropbox and find it to be indispensable, and now listeners of Best of the Left can get a 14-day free trial by following the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. First read, described as an online analysis of the day's political news from the NBC News political unit, wondered on July 29th whether Obama was losing the message war on health care. The network's Chuck Todd et al. cited as evidence questions from callers at a town hall meeting that referenced GOP scaremongering about rationed care and, quote, the government coming to your house to ask how you want to die, close quote. Not a factor in the message war or in people's tendency to believe rumors is the media, evidently. In stories like this, reporters themselves are usually invisible, merely passively reflecting the public mood and understanding. Economist Dean Baker notes the same phenomenon on his Beat the Press blog, pointing to a recent report by NPR's Mara Liason. Liason reported a poll showing dwindling support for Obama's health care plan, noting a pollster's view that people had heard about the program's huge price tag, but less about its benefits. 
As Baker notes, whatever one thinks of Obama's plan, its price tag is equal to about 0.5 percent of projected GDP over the next decade, while the Iraq war alone, at its peak, cost more than twice as much, 1 percent of GDP, without a media conversation focused largely on its huge cost. It's pretty uncontroversial to say that health care coverage in the corporate media is pretty bad. A recent survey by the Project on Excellence in Journalism found that three-fourths of the coverage they studied in one week focused on political strategy and beltway maneuvering. A recent Politico report tried to get reporters to explain why the health care issue seemed to, well, bore them. One MSNBC host explained that it's bad ratings. CNBC correspondent and New York Times reporter John Harwood explained further, quote, it's not only not a cable TV-friendly story, it's not a journalism-friendly story, close quote. Harwood lamented the difficulties in understanding cost controls and the like. NPR health reporter Julie Rovner concurred, telling Politico that, quote, the problem with health care is that it's so big and so complicated that the public is never going to really understand all the moving parts of this, close quote. Well, at least two thoughts come to mind. Number one, there are lots of complicated stories that involve economic forecasting and moving parts, but reporters don't always run away from passing firm judgments on, say, the long-term financial viability of Social Security and the need to cut benefits in order to preserve a system that doesn't need saving anyway. Number two, what should one make of journalists who complain that a subject as important as health care is too complicated, too difficult to explain, or just plain boring? If it's really that difficult, perhaps they should find another line of work. Detroit Free Press columnist Mitch Album, best known for his bestseller Tuesdays with Maury, recently criticized the Obama health care reform effort as, quote, the worst and most destructive form of politics, class warfare, close quote. Album took particular offense at Obama's press secretary Robert Gibbs' statement that, quote, the president believes that the richest 1% of this country has had a pretty good run of it for many, many, many years, close quote. The pretty good run millionaires have had over the past two decades is well documented. The share of all after-tax income that's gone to the top 1% has more than doubled since 1979, according to a recent Congressional Budget Office report. But that was not the kind of class warfare that Album was concerned with. He was disturbed by a proposed health care surcharge on taxpayers earning over $1 million a year. Album remarked, quote, Ah, so that's it. The old, you've had it good enough for long enough policy. That's why a family earning a million dollars a year should now cough up 54,000 of that, close quote. Well, if Album, who has an MBA from Columbia, actually read the proposed bill, he would see that a family making a million dollars a year wouldn't pay an extra $54,000 a year in taxes from the proposed 5.4% surcharge, because the surcharge would only apply to income beyond the first million dollars of income. A smaller surcharge would kick in at $350,000 and increase at $500,000. But the total tax increase for a couple making a million dollars would be nine. $9,000, or one-sixth of what Album claimed was a grossly overweighted tax. But then, actual numbers have rarely stood in the way of the corporate press's defense of the most prevalent form of class warfare, that which is waged from above, and there's an article on this very phenomenon in the current issue of Fairs Magazine Extra. 
And finally, while Mitch Albom wrestles with understanding marginal tax rates, Fox's Bill O'Reilly is defeated by the very concept of arithmetic. During the viewer mail segment of his July 27th show, O'Reilly responded to a Canadian who asked, Has anyone noticed that life expectancy in Canada under our health system is higher than the USA? By explaining, quote, Well, that's to be expected, Peter, because we have ten times as many people as you do. That translates to ten times as many accidents, crimes, down the line, close quote. We trust that Counterspin listeners understand that life expectancy is a mean age of death calculated over a population, the age that an average person living in a given country can expect to live, and that is affected by things like clean water, nutritious food, and, as the writer says, health care, and yes, even by accidents and crimes, but not by the size of a country's population. But just in case there are some O'Reilly fans listening, the answer is no, Canadians don't live twice as long as Chinese. The O'Reilly gaffe made us wonder if something in the water at Fox was causing innumeracy, as it reminded us of the time in 2003 that managing editor and anchor Brit Hume tried to downplay U.S. casualties in Iraq as negligible, explaining dim-wittedly that, quote, statistically speaking, U.S. soldiers have less of a chance of dying from all causes in Iraq than citizens have of being murdered in California, which is roughly the same geographical size, close quote. Since O'Reilly's and Hume's gaffes both serve Fox's nationalist agenda and neither have been corrected, maybe it's not the water, just the Kool-Aid. governed by a sinister foreigner masquerading as a native-born American, a real-life Manchurian candidate advancing a perverse plan to cull the population of the elderly. That's either a plot for a bad Hollywood thriller or this week in the wingnutosphere. That's from a YouTube video of a Delaware town hall meeting with Congressman Mike Castle, a video that has flown all over the Internet and cable news, fomenting right-wing rage over an imposter in the White House. Of course, the president has long since provided his birth certificate and contemporaneous Honolulu newspapers back in 1961 announcing his bouncing baby birth. 
but that's not good enough for the birthers, as they've come to be called. Some of them are fringe loonies. Some of them are members of Congress, such as the 11 Republican co-sponsors of a bill that would require future presidential candidates to present a U.S. birth certificate in order to run. And some of them are CNN's Lou Dobbs. It's a lot of questions remaining, and seemingly the questions won't go away because they haven't been dealt with. So demonstrably false is this rumor that even some of the most caustic media voices on the right have tried to squelch it. Among them, Fox News Channel's Bill O'Reilly, MSNBC's Joe Scarborough, and columnists Ann Coulter and Michelle Malkin. Still, with at least one poll showing that 58% of Republicans are not certain of the president's citizenship, White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs was at pains to deal with the birthers this week. The president was born in Honolulu, Hawaii, the 50th state of the greatest country on the face of the earth. There are 10,000 more important issues for people in this country to discuss. Chief among those 10,000 issues is health care reform. But if Gibbs somehow believed the gravity of that matter guaranteed honest debate, he was sadly mistaken. It, too, was mired this week in a trumped-up controversy over a non-existent provision in the White House plan. Here on Fred Thompson's radio show is supposed health care expert Betsy McCoy. One of the most shocking things I found in this bill, and there were many, is on page 425 where the Congress would make it mandatory, absolutely required that every five years people in Medicare have a required counseling session that will tell them how to end their life sooner. Whoa, the feds culling the population of those burdensome elderly? That is shocking. Also, utterly untrue. The bill would simply allow seniors who do wish for professional advice on end-of-life issues, from will writing to hospice care, to get the government to pick up the tab. Yet the euthanasia canard was parroted by House Republican leader John Boehner and at least referenced by Fox News, CNN, the New York Post, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. That's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that Betsy McCoy is the same person caught in a series of lies back in 1994 when she helped torpedo the Clinton health care initiative by claiming, falsely, that the plan would forbid citizens from obtaining private medical care. But, of course, that was before the Internet and the proliferation of 24-hour cable news, which is why writer James Fallows, who was in the forefront of debunking McCoy's claims 15 years ago, predicted on this program in May that nowadays, in a world of blogs and fact-checkers, McCoy wouldn't do so well. Fallows joins us once again. Jim, welcome back. Uh, Bob, thank you. I'm sorry I'm sick this time, but I'll do my best. All right, smart guy. What do you have to say for yourself? I think if you compare this with 15 years ago, you do see a difference in the ecology of the news. Part of it, I think, involves Betsy McCoy herself, because this is now the third time she's gone out on a limb with something that just isn't true. But if you compare this with 15 years ago, where it took 
a long time, in fact, beyond the lifespan of the Hillary Bill Clinton health care proposal, to sort of come to grips with what was wrong with what she's saying. Now there's been almost an instant feedback loop. And I think the difference is, while the Limbaugh's and the Fred Thompson's and even a few Republicans in the House are repeating this latest claim, it doesn't have the gravitas that her original one erroneously did have. And so I think there's something about the woman herself, but I think even more about the kind of instant feedback loop, which is the good side of the Internet news cycle now. Okay, fair enough. But I have to observe that the president was concerned enough about this disinformation that he felt the need to address an AARP town hall meeting to assure seniors that there are no federal plans to force them to euthanize themselves. I think that illustrates a different phenomenon of the Internet age, which is not so good. This same president also has to deal, or at least his team does, with the so-called birther claims that he was born in Kenya or someplace. And so just as the Internet has made it possible for such mainstream organs as exist to do faster fact-checking, it also allows these kind of independent ecosystems of factual belief to persist. So I'm sure that just as the birthers will be there all the way along, I'm sure that there will be hearty reception for some of the latest claims that Ms. McCoy has made. And they have to be dealt with, but somehow it's different to have a question the president has to deal with than sort of mainstream conventional wisdom believing it. So... There's another issue here, a media issue of being in the Rolodex. Once you're in the Rolodex of TV producers, especially at cable news, it's kind of hard to get dislodged from it. CNN, which uh, as recently as February was debunking McCoy's claims, recently had her on the air to talk about health care reform and identified her as a, quote, longtime expert in public health. This is the sort of thing, and I say this jokingly, which makes me yearn for my days back in the Chinese-controlled state media when I was, was living there. There is a built-in problem with nonstop talk news. Number one, you need to fill every show, and guests are cheap. Number two, you need to, quote, unquote, balance every show. So if you have some guy from the National Institutes of Health or the AMA, you need somebody on the other side. And there seems to be almost no extremity of being proven wrong, which disqualifies you from that role. Every time I turn on cable news, I expect to see the boy who cried wolf uh, <laughs> to weigh in on the, you know, the sheep situation. That's a great example, because you could have an expert from the National Institute of Wolf Study saying, <laughs> well, as far as we can tell, there aren't any wolves. And then you get the boy who cried wolf, and it makes for an interesting cable discussion. So, yeah, I think that one has to look for the good as well as the depressing in the evolving nature of the news. And I do maintain there is an element of good in the ability for faster detection of simple falsehood. That was hard to do in the 90s. It's easier to do now. But there's all this other stuff we have to worry about, too. She says, wake up, it's no use if you feel like you're just one travel mug away from total contentment, you need to check out the Best of the Left store. Between my cafe press and print fiction stores, I've got all the t-shirts, travel mugs, and tote bags you could possibly want to show your Best of the Left pride. If it's a gift you're looking for, then go no farther than a podcast by mail subscription. It's a great way to introduce the show to someone who is not into the whole podcasting scene, but would love to hear it every week sent to them on a CD. Just go to the store tab at bestofleft.com.
At this point, even diehard news consumers have to admit this sad truth about the healthcare debate. It's usually really, really boring. I ask you, is there any writer in the English language gifted enough to compose an interesting sentence involving the long-term financial health of Medicare? No, there is not. But a month ago, a House subcommittee held a hearing where a handful of congresspeople could tear into witnesses with the zeal of starving men eating their first real meal in months. They found a corner of the health care crisis that anybody could understand, that would make anybody mad, that anybody would want to get in there and fix. It didn't uh, get much coverage, this hearing. Uh, it was the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations of the House Committee on Energy and Commerce. And here is its chairman, Bart Stupak of Michigan reviewing the fine print of an insurance application with Don Ham, who's the head of the insurance company that issued it, Assurant Health. What the congressman is trying to figure out in this first clip I'm going to play you is, are these insurance application forms intentionally difficult so an average person would make mistakes filling them out, mistakes that would later let the insurance company deny them benefits or cancel their policy? As you said, your insurance health questionnaires are simple, easy to understand, straightforward language, so people can easily and accurately report their medical history. So, let me ask you this. In your policy, Mr. Ham, it states in question number 14, within the last 10 years, has any proposed insured had any diagnosis, received treatment for, or consulted with a physician concerning phlebitis, TIA, cystitis, lymphadenopathy or glandular disorder. So tell me, what is TIA? I am not aware. I, I believe. How, how would your, if you don't know what it is, how would anyone filling out your application know what it is? So there's grounds to deny them right there. You don't even know what it is, either do I. How about phlebitis or lymphadenopathy? How about lymphadenopathy? What's that? I don't know the answer to those questions. Do you sincerely believe that an average applicant would know what these words mean if you don't know and I don't know? Sir, I believe that is an application that is not currently used at this time. I would like to uh, look so last at year's application. Last year's application, have you changed the application last year? Uh, I'm not aware if we have changed that application. This hearing was the culmination of a year-long investigation by the subcommittee into the fine print of our nation's insurance policies, and specifically into something called rescission for people who have their own individual insurance. This doesn't apply to people who get insurance through their jobs or group insurance policies. For people who have individual insurance, rescission is what happens when an insurance company decides that you lied when you applied for a policy with them. You pretended that you were healthier than you really were or you concealed a serious and expensive illness, or you simply made a mistake without intending to and omitted something about your health that they might want to know. And so they cancel your policy. They rescind it. The problem, according to the subcommittee's investigation, is that so many people get kicked off who weren't trying to deceive the insurance companies at all. They found that if you get an illness, especially an expensive illness, the insurance companies go looking for a way to kick you off. The subcommittee found a guy in Virginia who lost his coverage because the insurance agent who sold him the policy incorrectly wrote down the guy's weight on a form and then never showed it to the guy to double check. A patient in Utah who needed surgery lost their insurance because of a mistake and omission on their spouse's application. I got a chance to talk with one of the lawmakers on the subcommittee, Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, a Democrat from Illinois, and she told me that even somebody like her, who's worked on health care issues for decades, was surprised to find out that this could happen. 
I hadn't even heard of it before, that you could actually be paying premiums, and then exactly when you really need the health insurance, they go back and deny it. And listening to this hearing, it seems like this was one of those cases where all of you really were seem really, truly angry. Really, truly angry, yes. In a very um, emotional and uh, personal way, yeah. This wasn't just another issue. And, and, and explain why. The, the very idea that a woman who has been diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer, who was insured, was suddenly told, we're not going to pay for this. My name is Robin Baton. I'm 59 years old. I was a registered nurse for 30 years. In June 2008, I was diagnosed with invasive HER2 genetic breast cancer, a very aggressive form of this cancer. I needed a double mastectomy immediately. The Friday before I was to have my double mastectomy, Blue Cross and Blue Shield called me by telephone and told me that my chart was red flagged. And what does that mean? They said that due to the dermatologist's report... There was something on her chart earlier about a dermatitis that they took to mean precancerous. And even though the dermatologist called and said, please, this is acne, do not deny her her breast cancer treatment, they said no. They said no. He said, please don't hold up her cancer surgery for this. He begged them. He was the nicest man. Anyway, they said that I would not be able to have my surgery on Monday, and they launched a medical investigation into my medical history. I was frantic. I didn't know how to pay for my surgery. The hospital wanted a $30,000 deposit. Can you imagine having to walk around with cancer growing in your body with no insurance? And it took her months to, to finally get uh, the, the surgery that, that she needed, by which time the tumor had doubled. And at the hearing, we, we had to, we, we, br- we took a break for five minutes while she, you know, composed her. I mean, she was clearly ill. Yeah. And, and that was so dramatic and moving to every member on the committee. I go to a cancer support group every week. Four girls in my cancer support group have had their insurance canceled. It is very difficult for me to speak out. My insurance could be canceled again. I live in fear every day of my insurance company. Looking at the face of a woman who had fast-moving breast cancer that could take her, her life, I, I just could not understand how the people who were testifying for the insurance industry could sleep at night as people, as individuals. How could they defend this policy? I, I remember there was one moment in the hearing where, where, where somebody on the panel actually asked, does it bother you that people are going to die because of these policies? Doesn't it bother you that people are going to die? Because you insist on reviewing a policy that somebody took out in good faith and forgot to tell you that uh, they were being treated for acne? 
Doesn't that bother you? Yes, sir, it does. And we regret the necessity that that has to occur even a single time. There were three heads of insurance companies at this hearing. Don Ham of Assurant Health, Richard Collins of United Health's Golden Rule Insurance Company, and Brian Sassy of WellPoint. And it seemed like they'd all been advised, like a lot of corporate guys are in situations like this, not to give an inch on anything. They would not admit, for instance, the premise of the hearing, that they go looking for people to throw off their roles in order to save money. At one point in the hearing, Congressman Stupak pulled out a list of 1,400 medical conditions that, if you have an individual policy with WellPoint insurance, trigger WellPoint to investigate you, looking for some way to cancel your policy. Diseases ranging from heart disease and high blood pressure to diabetes and even pregnancy. So what do these conditions have in common that would cause you to investigate patients with these conditions for a possible rescission? Uh, I would say there's no common theme other than uh, these are conditions that had the applicant disclosed uh, their knowledge of a condition at the time of initial underwriting, uh, we may have taken a different underwriting action. So in 1,400 different areas they lie? The applicants lie? Or is it really a cost, a cost issue? These are yeah, 1,400 expensive about, areas, aren't they? Yeah, rescission is not about uh, cost. According to the subcommittee's investigation, between the years 2003 and 2007, these three companies saved at least $300 million through the use of rescission. The insurance company's defense of rescission came down basically to two ideas. They have to fight fraud if they're going to give decent benefits to everybody else. And rescission is rare. Rescission affects less than one-half of one percent of the people we cover. During 2008, we rescinded only one-tenth of one percent of individual policies that year. Our use of rescission is rare, less than one-half of one percent of all individual insurance policies. Here's what those percentages mean in practice. The subcommittee's official report notes that at least 19,776 policies were rescinded between the years 2003 and 2007 by these three companies. They say at least in the report because United Health failed to provide data for two years and WellPoint wouldn't provide data from all of its subsidiaries. Toward the end of the three-and-a-half-hour hearing, after lawmakers made these three executives sit and listen to people who used to be their own customers, who their own companies had rescinded policies for, even though those people never tried to deceive the insurance companies about their health like Robin Baton, the woman with cancer. Congressman Bart Stupak boiled everything down to one simple inquiry. Let me ask each of our CEOs this question, uh, starting with you, Mr. Ham. Would you commit today that your company will never rescind another policy unless there was intentional fraud, fraudulent misrepresentation in the application? I would not commit to that. How about you, Mr. Collins? Would you commit to not to rescind any policy unless there's an intentional fraudulent misrepresentation? Uh, no, sir. We follow the state laws and regulations, and uh, we would not stipulate to that. What he's saying is state laws allow us to do it this way, and we're good with that. How about you, Mr. Sassy? Uh, no, I can't commit to that. The intentional standard is not the law of the land in the majority of states. Can I ask, were you surprised that none of them would commit to this? Oh, no, I wasn't surprised. It doesn't surprise me, one, that they would say, well, the law is on our side. And when you guys go into these kinds of hearings, do you go into them hoping to get the companies to go on the record and say in a moment like this that they're going to change their policies? Or do you just want to get them on the record being obstinate and, and unsympathetic? Well, I guess the answer really is that 
such a heartless policy of these companies does need to be put on the record and contrasted with the real people who are hurt so badly by by those. And so the idea is let's get these guys up up here and and get them to show America that that they're not going to change unless we push them. Exactly. There came a point where, where uh, one of the Republicans on the panel, uh, Representative Michael Burgess uh, from Texas, who's a doctor, said said to the said to the companies, "Look, I'm on your side. I like to help you guys, but I can't help you out if if this is how you're going to be." And I would urge you to think creatively about this problem because this is the difficulty that leads us to where we are here today. And I can't help you. Okay, questions I or speeches are over. If if you're not willing to move on this issue. Do you feel any sense of hope that the companies will, 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 will come around and want to work with you? Did you? Do you have any moment, have you had any moment uh, privately talking to the companies where you've thought like, okay, well, maybe? No. I, I think that we just have to make it against the law for them to, to do it. They've had their way with us uh, for decades, and and here we are in this in this terrible mess where they want to ensure only healthy people. And, you know, if you're unlucky enough to get a, uh, a serious disease or have a, a, an accident, then good luck. Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky of Illinois, she went straight from our interview to a markup of the House health bill. She told me that she believes that rescission is something that is so hard to defend, something that is so clear cut that she thinks it's one of the things that Congress is going to be able to outlaw in whatever kind of health reform we end up with. Find a cure, find a cure for my life, find a cure, find a cure for my life, find a cure, find a cure for my life, find a cure, find a cure for my life. Oh my God, oh you think I'm in control? Oh my God, oh you think it's all for fun? Oh my God, oh you think I'm in control? Oh my God, oh you think it's all for fun? Find a cure, find a cure for her. Can you call it one-party control if nobody's in, well, control? That was Rick Klein of ABC News talking about the Democrats' inability to get their act together when it comes to what big issue? Well, it has to do with health care. Health care, in fact, very good. <laughs> Democrats, they have the White House. They have dominating majorities in the House and Senate, but of course they have one single weakness. They're Democrats. <laughs> As it turns out, being a Democrat is like kryptonite to Democrats. <laughs> Particularly the Senate Democrats, by the way, who threw out Robert's rules of order and have organized themselves according to Golding's Lord of the Flies. <laughs> On health care, the Democrats are all fighting each other over details of the various complicated uh, reform proposals. It's really complicated, but ultimately it boils down to whether senior citizens will be put out on ice flows <laughs> or mulched. 
more environmentally conscious, liberal wing wants them recycled somehow. No, you don't want to, here's the thing. Yeah, you two know. out of three of your panel are senior citizens. That's true. I'm a little scared by this. But you do not want You're outnumbered on the stage. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's you and Amy against the world here. <laughs> the Republicans were saying, they were saying, oh, you know, the government is going to come to your house and they're going to ask you how you want to die. That's what the government reform is going to do. And Obama's like, don't be rude. That's insane. He had to address us at a public event. It's insane, he said. Nobody's, no government bureaucrat is going to come to your house and ask you how you want to die. When the time comes, we will tell you how you will die. <laughs> <laughs> In 94, you were credited with uh, uh, driving the stake through the heart of health care and the, uh, the Hillary care. You've come out again and said, uh, I say no. Republicans, uh, this is your moment to not be helpful. Let's kill this thing. <laughs> I'm obviously paraphrasing. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, why? Why no health care? Why no health care reform for Americans? Because the military fighting for us gave it up. Why do you hate America? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, they should kill the, the, the Obama plan and uh, start over and pass sensible, targeted health care reforms. This is a very bad plan. It's unnecessary to but overhaul the... He stepped away and said, Congress, do your work. Here are the parameters I want. Right, and they, that, those Democratic majorities have done a great job. Huge tax increase in the middle of a recession, a huge uh, uh, mandates on everyone, uh, ra ultimately rationing of health care. It's a very bad plan. It's unnecessary. There are lots of things you can fix in the American health care system without completely overhauling it and trying to micromanage what be, what, it from what's Washington. A nice, what's a nice targeted there, thing? No, well, insurance fixes, so you can't discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. Now, why Make not it easier that? to keep your insurance. Well, they are. There's a Republican bill no, no. up there for that. But why, why come out in an article and say, let's kill I this have, thing and do it next year? We published a million year. articles calling for that, but no one cares. A million, bill, a million bill. A million. A hundred thousand. Bill. A hundred thousand. The, uh, a million. <laughs> Is it a thousand? Do you, the, would you like to see a look, public a, option? No. No, why not? Because why, why shouldn't the government provide some level of care to the 50 million uh, uninsured? The government does have Medicaid for the poor, and, the, and there are many proposals, and there already are some subsidies for people to buy health insurance uh, who can't afford to. And why the, is and the one insurance reason, One reason the better. price of health care is going up so fast is because of the government programs. The price of Medicare and Medicaid have gone up faster than private insurance. So the more government you have, the faster the prices are going to go up, uh, and that's pretty 
well documented over the last 20, 30 years, and then you're going to have to try to control costs, and that will lead to rationing. It is a bad plan. This Congressional the Budget Office, now, run by Democrats, money? says it's going to bust the budget. It's really actually, you know what they came out today, yeah, and they said that it's even worse. Uh, they said today. no, no, no. They said today that it could exist with private plans, and that it would they would coexist, the, and it would actually. Uh, after 10 years, be begin to bring costs down this with this new uh, uh, board that's going to oversee... And this uh, board, which is going to tell us, oh, you can't have this machine, or you can't have this treatment if you're too old. But don't the insurance companies say that? No, now? they don't, actually, especially not in Medicare, where they mostly... No, that's not true. I mean... The, insurance, the reason Medicare costs, prices are going up, costs is going up so much, is that in fact the insurance companies tend to step back and let doctors make the judgments they make for Medicare. Now, for private insurance, it's tougher. But that's Medicare. And, right. That's, right. For private because insurance, they, know they Medicare tend to be won't deny people. Right. For private insurance, they tend to be tougher. And I think it is. I'm not a big fan of the insurance companies. There are plenty of targeted reforms, but this massive overhaul is a bad idea. It's not going to make it. Uh, if Governor Palin had been president, she wouldn't have proposed such a foolish plan. She wouldn't have insulted. She wouldn't have insulted pediatricians the way President Obama did Wednesday when night. When did he insult pediatricians? Are you kidding? Did you see what he said? That one big in our current health care plan, pediatricians, some kid comes in and they, because of the reimbursement schedule, they send kids to have tonsillectomies who don't need them. Does he really think that's how the health care system works? The pediatricians sit around saying, "I think I can make some money after sending some kid to get." A I don't know if he thinks their motivation is that. They don't make money incidentally I, I, when they send the kid to the hospital. But I do believe that because you are paid for the amount of things you do that people end up doing more tests than they probably the should because that's be, a way to uh, get some money. Oh, you think that's what a lot of doctors sit around saying, to, let's have more tests to get some money? No, I'm not sure what they, I said was that they sit around saying, let's get some more money. I'm just saying that's that... That's what you said. Well, the free market incentive is a profit incentive, and if you're paid for the main uh, reason uh, there are so many tests, the main why reason not there give so as many procedures as you can? Not only will you main do more uh, uh, procedures than you might do normally, you will also be reimbursed for the it. The main reason there are so many tests is defensive medicine, because people are scared of lawsuits, and that's another debate, but everyone thinks there has to be some liability reform for doctors, and do, does any Democratic bill have any reform Should of the tort system? No. Look, this is Why a, not just and, and incidentally, that, if Why kill it? What do you mean, why kill it? Let's, you have to kill this bad idea and start over with lots of But they're of still working ideas. on the idea. Why not? They're this not is passionate. passionate. I love your passion. <laughs> Bring this to Washington. Bill Crystal for health care reform. You go to Washington and you tell them, listen to the pediatricians who are being, what is it, put down by Obama. Yes. Yes, I heard they it the are. other day. You did. Pediatricians as well as cops. and their sucky as, pediatrician as well as cops. <laughs> Governor Palin, Governor Palin would have insulted the Cambridge police force. Governor Palin might have had better judgment than President Obama on several of these issues. Think about that. Think about that. Don't think too hard. I can see your head's going to your head's going to explode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Governor Palin is still bringing up an Ashley Judd PSA about shooting wolves from helicopters. She's she still feels upset deeply about, this. about shooting those wolves from helicopters. And, <laughs> and Ashley Judd wounded I, her, I suppose. I, here's I don't what know. I cannot figure out. What you actually believe. Because when you let's say the Sarah Palin thing, you have, a, you have a look on your face like, she'll be the death of us all. <laughs> Healthy that's, that's what I say. So you, you don't believe, no public option. So even though that's good enough for the military, not good enough for the people of America? No. Well, the military has a different health system than the rest of Americans. It's a public system, though. Yeah, they don't have an option. They're all in, the build, in military health care. Why don't we go with that, then? I don't know. Is military health care really what you, well, first of all, it's expensive. I think they deserve it, the military. I'm not sure But the American public do not. No, the American public do not deserve the same quality health care soldiers fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan deserve, and they need all kinds of things that the rest of us don't need. 
Well, no, they can have the level of care, but are you saying that the American public shouldn't have access to the same quality health care that we give to our better citizens? Yes. To our soldiers? Absolutely. American public. Really? I think one thing, if you become a soldier, you, deserve, they have you, deserve, you deserve... No, they don't have should as nice houses, more? John. Maybe you're not aware no, of that. No, I'm they saying, get paid less. They? Well, they that's get what paid I'm saying. Less. So one of the ways we make it up to the soldiers, is we, and since they're risking their lives, we give them first-class health care. The rest of us can go out and buy insurance. So you just as said... We, as 90% of, of us have. Just, I just want to get this on record. Bill Crystal just said you that, the, me that the government can run a first-class health care system. And that a government-run health care system is better than the private health care system. I, think, I don't think it's, I don't know if it's better. I don't know if it's better. No, you I just said it was better. I don't know if it's better all No, you around. said it was better. You said it's the best. The military needs... It's a little more expensive, but it's better. need different kinds of health care so from the rest of us. the government... I just want to get this down. Write that down. The government runs the best health care... I will support you in arguing for better health care for right. the military so if, they're in, if they're in any way being deprived of it. I understand that. So what you are suggesting is that the government could run the best health care system for Americans, but it's a little too costly, so we should have the shitty insurance company health care. No, what I'm suggesting <laughs> no is our soldiers deserve better health care than the, best. the rest of us because they they're risking the their lives. Right? I agree but with you. Not, and they're they not have in the, the same situation as all the rest of us. They and have the best government-run health care money combined. That could be. I hope they do. I'm not sure the VA, for example, which is another government Don't agency, has the, best, has, the best, has the best health care. I'm not sure Medicaid and Medicare, which are government programs, provide the absolute best, best health care. <laughs> but you know what? This, this You're going to get thrown proves, out of the weekly standard. This, They're not going to let you back. This proves how complicated health care is and why. It is, it is ridiculous to overhaul the whole thing with one 1,000-page piece of, piece of legislation, which no one has read, which they're going to try to unveil Listen, this week I don't, and jam through the House. Can I say, seriously, I don't doubt that there are a lot of pitfalls in this, and, and there should. I think the thing that I'm having the most trouble with is the obstinance of it, people saying this could be as well. I feel like there is, this is a way for people to bring down a presidency rather than do what's right for No, for, I don't think so. It's a no? way to oppose... It's a, way, it's a way to oppose a major initiative of a president whom you and many here have a lot invested in. And, you know, I'm sorry about that. I actually just uh, should have invested in Goldman Sachs and forget well, about the I, whole thing. I agree with you on that. This, you can have a Seriously? left right. Well, I don't know that much about it, but I'm, yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of the Wall Street banks. I think they've behaved badly, and they, they now seem to be making a fortune partly off the money that we, wow. the taxpayers, gave them. So Between that I'm, and I'm, your health care <laughs> position, you're like a socialist. Well, you know, I come back to the Upper West Side, and I get sort of affected, infected or affected by the environment here. I'm telling I don't know you what, what man, Bush leaves, and now you're, like, free. You're, yeah, like, free. It. Free at last. You can run around. Free at last. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Was it... What, what would be worth more, a trillion dollars to fix health care or a trillion dollars to rebuild Iraq? What would you, what would you say would be worth more? I, uh, it's not, we're not spending a trillion dollars to rebuild Iraq, let me assure you. And I'm not against spending more money on health care. One of the phony things about Obama's plan is that he pretends it won't cost more money. If you want to insure 45 million people who aren't insured, let's think of ways to do it. And let's say, okay, as a great society, we should try to help those people who can't afford insurance buy insurance. And let's just pay for it. But that's not what President Obama But well, why didn't they do that? Here, here's the thing that, that is trouble. In 1994, when they killed it, this was the same argument. Let's kill it. We need targeted reforms that are really smart. And there were a lot of targeted reforms. But there weren't. Actually, yes, there have been. There was actually. the Medicare prescription thing that was sort of which was pretty good. Pharma. No, it wasn't. That's helped yeah. a lot of seniors. You know, it has. All right. We should talk to some seniors sometime, John. I am. <laughs> you know, we're, we're getting there.
that's the real point tonight. Not all of it is going through Republicans. Because the evil truth is the insurance industry, along with the hospitals, HMOs, pharma, nursing homes, it owns Democrats too. Not the whole party. Candidate Barack Obama got more than 18 million from the health sector just last year, and you can bet somebody in the health trust, somebody responsible for buying influence, they got fired over what Obama has done. No, the Democrats are not wholly owned. Hundreds of Democrats have taken campaign money from the health sector without handing over their souls as receipts. But conveniently, the ones who are owned have made themselves easy to spot in a crowd. They've called themselves blue dogs, and they are out there, hand in hand with the Republicans, who they are happy to condemn day and night on everything else, throatily singing kumbaya with the men and women who were bought and sold to defend this con game of an American health care system against the slightest encroachment. Congressman Mike Ross of Arkansas, leader of the Blue Dogs in the House, you're the guy demanding a guarantee that reform will not add to the deficit. I'm guessing you just forgot to demand that about, say, Iraq. You're a Democrat, you say, Congressman. You saw what Sandy Barham said? Sandy Barham is 62 years old. She's got a bad heart. She's hoping her valves will hold together for three more years until Medicaid kicks in because she can't afford insurance. Not just for herself, mind you, for her employees, too. She needs the public option. So do those six people who work at that restaurant of hers, Congressman Ross. And why should you give a crap? Because Sandy Barham's restaurant is the Broadway Railroad Cafe, and it is at 123 West 1st Street North in Prescott, Arkansas. Prescott, Arkansas, Congressman Ross. Your hometown, you are Sandy Barham's congressman. Hers, sir, not blue crosses and blue shields, even if they do insure 75% of the state and they own you. The top donor so far to Congressman Ross's bid for re-election next year, the Blue Dog Pack, 10,000 bucks. Second, something called Invacare, 7,300. Oh, they make wheelchairs and rollers and slings. They're big in slings. Tied for third, the American Dental Association, another grand, five grand, matter of fact. Your top donors by industry, Congressman Ross, health professionals, 29,250. Then pharma and health products, 12,250. And so far in your career, Congressman Ross, your total haul from the health sector is 921,000. That is 90th in the combined list of donations for the House and the Senate, sir. 90th out of 537. You should be proud, Congressman. Except for the fact that before you started living off the public dime, you owned a pharmacy. And your grandmother was a nurse. And it turns out you're not Sandy Barham's congressman after all. You are Blue Crosses. So much for Congressman Ross. Congressman Bart Gordon of Tennessee. Congressman, undecided on the public option? At a million one hundred seventy-three thousand in donations from the health sector, I'm surprised. You should have already said no and loudly. The only thing you should be undecided about is whether or not you're really a Democrat. So much for Congressman Gordon. Senator Max Baucus of Montana. Good evening, Senator. So you're supposed to be negotiating all this out with the Republicans and the hesitant Democrats to gain bipartisanship with a wholly owned subsidiary of the health sector. Bipartisanship that will get you what? A total of no votes? And your price has been, let's see, $414,000 in donations from the hospitals, $667,000 in donations from the insurance companies, just over a million from Big Pharma, a million three hundred grand from other health professionals, and $237,000 from nursing homes. 
When you think of getting $237,000 in campaign contributions from nursing homes, Senator Baucus, do you ever think about whether they subtract that amount of money evenly from all the patients suffering and dying in the lousy ones, or just from a few of the lousy ones? So much for Senator Baucus. Sadly, this list could go on almost all night, too. I could ask Blue Dog Congressman Democrat John Tanner of Tennessee if, since he has gotten 215 grand from hospitals over the years, if I and the appropriate number of my friends were willing to make it 216 grand, if we could buy his vote, or would there still have to be an auction? We could bring up Senator Hagan and Congressman Pomeroy, who at 628000 appears to represent the insurance industry and not North Dakota. I could bring up Senator Carper and Senator Blanche Lincoln. And Senator Lincoln, by the way, considering how you're obstructing health care reform, how do you feel every time you actually see Senator Kennedy? We could bring up all the other Democrats doing their master's bidding in the House or the Senate, all the others who will get an extra thousand from somebody if they just postpone the vote another year, another month, another week. Because right now, without the competition of a government-funded insurance company, in one hour, the health care industries can make so much money that they would kill you for that extra hour of profit. I could call them all out by name, but I think you get the point. We do not need to call the Democrats holding this up blue dogs. That one word, dogs, is perfectly sufficient. But let me speak to them collectively anyway. I warn you all, you were not elected to create a Democratic majority. You were elected to restore this country. You were not elected to serve the corporations and the trusts who the government has enabled for these last eight years. You were elected to serve the people. And if you fail to pass or support this legislation, the full wrath of the progressive and the moderate movements in this country will come down on your heads. Explain yourselves not to me, but to them. They elected you, and in the blink of an eye, they will replace you. If you will behave as if you are Republicans, as if you are the prostitutes of our system, you will be judged as such, and you will lose not merely our respect, you will lose your jobs. Every poll, every analysis, every vote, every region of this country supports health care reform and the essential great leveling agent of a government-funded alternative to the unchecked duopoly of profiteering private insurance corporations. Cross us all at your peril, because Congressman Ross, you are not the representative from Blue Cross. And Mr. Baucus, you are not the senator from sharing plow global health care, even if they have already given you 76 grand towards your reelection. And Ms. Lincoln, you are not the senator from DeVita Dialysis. Because, ladies and gentlemen, President Lincoln did not promise that this nation shall have a new death of freedom and that government of the corporation, by the corporation, for the corporation, shall not perish from this earth. Good night and good luck. Thanks for listening, everybody, and especially thanks to members who are helping to keep the show going today. Of course, I just want to thank, uh, real quick, William M., member number 28, joined up on July 28th, pretty recently, and Doug G., member number 14, 
joined up back in uh, on June 19th. So thanks to both of you guys. In fact, both of them have gone above and beyond the Call of Duty and are donating more than the minimum amount. Of course, anyone can become a member for as little as $5 a month. But I just wanted to give a little extra recognition to those who have gone above and beyond that. So if you're interested in being a member, of course, you will enjoy the benefits of that warm and fuzzy feeling you get knowing that you're helping to keep the show going as well as the uh, wonderful raw feed that we're now running. Through that feed, you'll receive all kinds of uh, content that'll be in the show eventually, but you'll get it as it happens, including the video version. So if you want like the best of the Colbert Report, The Daily Show, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, and there may even be others I'm forgetting, uh, but video versions of all of those things available to members only in the Best of the Left Raw feed. All you have to do is sign up to become a member. Uh, there's a membership tab on the website now, bestoftheleft.com, and as soon as you sign up, I will send you the details about the raw feed. Now, for the rest of you who are not uh, able or interested in becoming members, I love you anyways, uh, but we do have some other uh, tasks for you. Uh, many of you will remember the 555 campaign. Unfortunately, the, the metrics behind that have changed a little bit, so it, it doesn't make for such a catchy marketing scheme. But the basic idea, the, the principle behind that, was that this is a shareware podcast. It's officially declared uh, shareware, meaning it is not free. In return for listening, you are required to help promote it or uh, give a little donation every once in a while. And there are lots of ways to, to help promote the show. So, of course, the alternative, I mean, you don't have to help promote the show. The alternative, though, is living uh, with the horrible weight of guilt on your shoulders all the time for, for listening to the show as much as eight times a month uh, without giving anything back. So anyways, for those of you uh, not interested in living in horrible guilt, here's what you can do. Podcast Alley. Uh, we're doing a good job of staying in the top 10 this month. We need about 100 more votes to ensure that we stay in the top 10 for the rest of the month. August 20th is the day of the great iTunes experiment. We're going to get 100 five-star reviews in one day, the 100 in one day campaign. And what I would like to encourage you to do is when you write your five-star review on August 20th, not by August 20th, when you write it on August 20th, in the review itself, go ahead and ask the, uh, the iTunes gods to give us a slot on the homepage of the podcast store, because that's what this is all about. If we can make enough of a wave to get their attention, uh, hopefully when, the, when we get their attention, we can have an ask in place. So when you write that review, go ahead and mention that you're doing it because you want to see the best of the left listed on the home page of the podcast store in iTunes. Now, finally, I just want to say the campaign to send emails to members of, well, before I said liberal organizations, people who get together, you know, possibly Democratic Party groups or just progressive groups of any kind. I think that it's working. Uh, you know, I, I don't talk about listenership much uh, or almost ever, but I got to say, I think I'm seeing a little bit of a, uh, a tick up in listenership 
and there's every reason to believe that that campaign is the reason. So I just want to uh, let you know that that is absolutely a worthwhile endeavor to uh, to take a look at. All you have to do take you know three or five minutes and write a little personal email about hey I listen to this show and I like it and I think you'd be interested in it too and then find a local organization in your area who you think would be interested in hearing from you that could be as I say the Democrats or the Green Party or a progressive group um, you know anyone who gets together to talk politics and would be interested uh, libertarians even you never know who's going to like the show Republicans probably wouldn't be too interested in it there's a fair chance if you wrote to them, uh, you may just get uh, a, a screed of death threats in response, but th- they're kind of a tough bunch. It's, it's a little bit like walking into a, an asylum of some sort and, and trying to give some good advice. Uh, there's every chance you'd just get uh, like feces thrown at you in response. So probably not the, not the best direction to put your uh, energies, but you never know. Maybe if you live, like, way up in the Northeast, there are some reasonable Republicans up there. Um, But my guess is they don't call themselves Republicans anymore. So that's all I have for you today. For your own benefit, you can do all of the following. Uh, Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook, as well as by signing up for our emails. You can get a variety of different kinds of emails from us, and you get to pick and choose the ones you want. Support the show. Of course, uh, supporting the show helps you in kind of a cyclical way, uh, similar to karma. Uh, You can do this by, of course, leaving us a five-star review in iTunes on August 20th. Uh, Vote for the podcast at uh, Podcast Alley every month. That's going strong right now, so keep that going. And by filling out our listener survey. That helps us learn about you and what you like and don't like and so forth. So links to all those are on the website. Just for your convenience, I've set it up so you can listen to the show on your smartphone or uh, wireless internet device without having to sync it with your computer by visiting stitcher.com. The show is listed there and you can find it. And for all the information you could possibly want, visit the show notes on the blog, find the links to all the sources we use, and the music found in this episode. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to the members from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, smell black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Pitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to meet. A dying man in a living room. Whose shadow bases the Just a fond friend I want to a friend